some days can be tough in life, just like a race. But some will be better days. But your foundation, the foundation that you are laying on your life, will help you on your tomorrow endeavor. Just like getting ready for a race, you don't just sit there and wait two days to a race day and try and run and expect to win. Hmm. You have to put the work. So then, so that's the thing that I have learned from you. Like it, in life, you cannot have just a cozy life by just sitting and expecting that, oh yeah, it's going to fix itself. You have to work for it. Hmm. I'm Mark Lane Holbert. This is episode 44 of the Running Anthropologist podcast. And those were the wise words of Marco Cicetto, who has much more to share with us throughout today's episode, particularly about how he came to be the double prosthetics world record holder holder from the Chicago Marathon this past October. Um, He was born in Kenya and raised in Kenya and came to the U.S. as an University of Alaska athlete, collegiate athlete, and running in many achievements in distance running throughout his college career. And from an accident while running, he actually lost both of his feet at the same time and struggled to overcome what was a physical and mental um, challenge for him over many years, but came back to run his first marathon in New York City and run in Boston, those are 2018 and 2019, and then of course his world record this past year in Chicago. He's got an incredible perspective on social justice and really allows me to reflect and all of us to think about our place in America and what we're going through right now and has some really great advice about simple things, how to move forward and how to take a step into reflection in our daily lives to make a positive impact on the situation in in our country. Uh, Really grateful for him being with us and thank him for his time. Let's get started much for joining us, Marco. Hey, you're welcome, Mark. All right. So to begin with, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how you started running and what that was like for you um, as a big part of your life. Yeah, growing back in Kenya. Yes. You know, running is part of a daily activity. There there is no particular time that I can pinpoint and say, hey, this is how I started running. So, going to school, we were running to school, going to the market to buy something, we would run. You know, there are no cars to just use it from one point to another. So it was kind of an informal way of life. Hmm. Yeah, it's a big, big uh, part of your home and your community, I'm sure. Um, just from being able to go from one place to another. Um, I I know that you faced a a lot of challenges um, before coming to the United States um, that kind of impacted you as a person and you as a runner. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about those? I really don't have a challenge that I would say as such, because, you know, when you're growing up in, a society that that is the way of life. Mm-hmm. There's nothing perceived as a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you're healthy, you're able to go to school, you're able to eat. They, that, that, that was not viewed as, uh, in my experience, as a challenge. Mm-hmm. 
just, just growing up in a rural part of Kenya, running to school. You know, whatever we had was, you know, and I'm for a kid growing up. There was nothing else that, you know, growing up knowing that this is what we got. There was no nostalgia for something that we had not, or I had not experienced myself. That's, so it, it was huh. just a, a good life, you know, growing up. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of people, you're right in that, that support network and just kind of the way that things are culturally, um, you know, maybe that prevented you from saying, oh, this is a challenge or this is difficult. Um, there's this this research area in the United States um, that's quite popular right now around resilience. So overcoming um, overcoming challenges to achieve goals and continue doing things that you want to do. Um, I know that you um, had an accident that impacted your life and your running. Um, can you tell us uh, how that how that plays into your life now and what that experience was like? You know, after I lost my feet, I had to come up with a way of rebuilding myself, mm. so getting myself back to a functional living. And, you know, that didn't take just talking to myself and saying, hey, I just want to wake up and do it. It took a lot of self-talk and refocusing my mindset on what really mattered in my life, in my second chance in life. You know, as an athlete, you know, running, I've been running until I was 28 when I lost my feet, and then all of a sudden now it's like, wow. You know, the tools that I used to have that made me enjoy what I used to do are no longer there. Hmm. And I was now sitting there, supposed to convince myself and talk to myself that things are going to work. Uh, you know, that was the part that, you know, I sat there and told myself, I, I have two choices. To use this experience as an excuse and stop doing what I could or what I want to do in life. Or use it as a a teachable moment and change the way I do things and still strive for success in life. Hmm. And I, I chose the latter. I said, you know what? I am going to do my best to not let whatever I had gone through define who I was going to be come as a human being. Because when I remembered my previous years, prior to losing my legs, there were some moments in my life that things were challenging. Hmm. And, you know, it didn't mean that now that I'm an amputee that things were going to either get worse or like things were going to all of a sudden be better. It was just working to make things work for me. Hmm. Yeah, being an amputee, obviously your, your identity was built around running. Um, if I understand correctly, you came to the U.S. and you were running right, right when you got here. Um, it, what was your, what was your early running uh, experience here in the United States? I came as a student athlete. 
So I was running for University of Alaska Anchorage, mm-hmm. long distance, you know, 10K, 5K. So, you know, I came in as a well-established uh, runner. So I didn't have any challenges transitioning from coming from Kenya to uh, U.S. college. It was just an easy transition from my previous running because I had built it while I was back in Kenya. Sure. Aside from the the temperature differences, which is a big adjustment, of course. (laughs) Yes, that was a big adjustment. But, you know, practice-wise or training, we trained in Alaska, but most of our races were not in Alaska. We didn't have home meets. We traveled around the country for competition. Interesting. Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about that. Um, to be in competition with other universities, obviously you have to travel. Um, yes. And the uh, the season is very short for any outdoor running um, on a track uh, in Alaska. Uh, would would that would you be doing mostly indoor running then when you're training? We Alaska has the biggest indoor facility in North America. We had a dome mm-hmm. that was 410 meters. So we had a full uh, truck, not not a little bit longer than a normal truck, but it was 210 meters long. So we practiced indoors, but it was on a full truck. Neat. Yeah, that's helpful. And then some of the, the some of the days we would run outside on the snow, <laughs> and some of the days that was so cold, man. Yeah, we would just do it indoors. Well, that's really interesting. I'm I'm very curious as to what it's like to to be a university student in Alaska. Is is that something that you'll look back on with with joy, or do you have good memories, or what what was it like? You know, I, I had a lot of good memories. You know, being a student athlete in Alaska because one, it gave me the ability to experience different settings in the U.S. culture. There was the Alaska life that, yes, it's part of the U.S., but it's kind of different in a way. Hmm. It was not part of the mainland. It's not part of the mainland U.S. So there are some different aspects of way of living in Alaska. Yeah, definitely. We had more land, more substance. You know, there were more things to do outside, longer summers. But then you come to the mainland U.S. for competitions, and you realize there is that part of Americans in Alaska calling themselves Alaskans mm-hmm. while they're in the mainland U.S., and everyone else in the, who was from the mainland U.S. did not identify themselves as for example, Floridians right. or Texans or Oklahomans or Mississippians. It was just, oh, we are from the U.S. And, you know, we're like, oh, we're Alaskans. So there was that, you know, different identity that was there. And that kind of was a good thing for me. It gave me this different perspective of how the U.S. culture or different parts of the country was. 
Yeah, you kind of you get to experience that very independent um, pioneering spirit. I think um, at least most Alaskans that that I've met, I, I don't know a lot, but that's my impression that they they move there because they they really want that. They want challenge and they want to live as part of the outdoors um, in a in an environment that's not always forgiving. Yes, and you know that too from my experience. Being in Alaska gave me more opportunities to travel more. Hmm. You know, like I said, we didn't have a lot of home meets. We would go to Hawaii, we go to East Coast, West Coast, South, you know, depending on where the competitions were. So it gave me that um, ability to be able to still say I am from Alaska, but I'm also able to experience different parts of the U.S. Unlike an athlete who was from the mainland U.S. that didn't have an opportunity to go to Alaska because there was nothing sports-wise that would take them to Alaska. Sure. Yeah, no, and Marco, you've had um, a lot of success running and and. As an amputee runner, you've—I mean—you've really shined and had a lot of success. Reading down all the things that you've done and won, and um, I, I, I'm curious, what are the things that that you're proudest of, um, or maybe that you're not giving up on? Um, things that are important to you. You know, like you asked me earlier if I had some challenges growing up in Kenya. And I said, you know, I didn't see them as a challenge. You know, it it was what the environment offered me growing up as a kid. But then when I moved to the U.S., things were a little easier. You know, you could do the same tasks that I used to do in Kenya. But in the U.S., these activities were now more mechanized. There was some kind of mechanization in it, and it was easier. Combining now my experience doing things in a longer version, if I would say, in Kenya, and now there is this easy part, kind of, not really easy, but a different way of doing the same thing, but in a more easier way, gave me that appreciation of life, that you know? Mm. Life in itself does not present itself in a very rosy manner. Hmm. You've got to go through all these ups and downs, bumps ahead, disappointments, but it's the beauty of life. It's Hmm. what will build you as a character. So the things that I am so proud of, of about running on myself is the ability to know that, you know, some days can be tough in life, just like a race, but some will be better days, but your foundation, the foundation that you are laying on your life will help you on your tomorrow endeavor. Just like getting ready for a race, you don't just sit there and wait two days to a rest day and try and run and expect to win. Hmm. You have to put the work. So then 
So that's the thing that I have learned from you. That it, in life, you cannot have just a cozy life where you're sitting and expecting that, oh yeah, it's going to fix itself. You have to work for it. Hmm. As you said, laying laying a foundation. Um, and you have a lot of experience with meeting and running with people who obviously have met very difficult um, circumstances in their lives, other amputees and other para runners. Um, I think in the U.S. in particular, um, probably uh, a lot of the young people, you know, one of the one of the results of a militarized, uh, very active military um, is that we do have a lot of amputees coming back from abroad, a lot of young people um, who become athletes. And uh, I don't know if, you know, kind of meeting them has has had an impact on you or if you have any reflection from meeting those fellow athletes. Yeah, definitely, yes. I, you know, and like, you know, there's different levels of amputation. Mm-hmm. And for my case, I am one of the lucky amputees who have a lot of what helps us as humans to function at a higher level. Hmm. I have that. I, I didn't lose so much of my body parts. But I have seen amputees that have lost so much, that, you know, through IEDs and all that war experiences. And they're still functioning in life. They still have a positive outlook in life. So those individuals have helped me in a way that when I'm sitting down there and pouting and thinking, man, I have this challenging life. And then I see this individual who is missing a lot of body parts, but they're still positive and functional. It gives me that motivation that you know what maybe i am not as bad as i think i am Hmm. somebody else is going through more challenge than i am and also for me in my own experience i think it's easier sometimes to recover from an incident that you've gone through if you don't have anybody else to blame and i see those young men and women who maybe lost their uh, limbs in a war, you know? And I don't know if this is how they feel, but in my own thought process, trying to be on their shoes and be like, how do you recover from something that you know someone else inflicted you the injury that you have. How do you reconcile that and forgive them and live your life without really being so upset and stuck on that moment that, you know, this, I didn't cause this on myself. Hmm. Yeah, as you mentioned, those those challenges and that kind of internal thinking is really the biggest struggle, like how, how you deal with um, how you deal with that trauma and how you kind of internalize it. And I think your your approach of not blaming, but really asking, you know, what can I do today? You know, that obviously I don't have that experience, but that seems like a really successful approach 
um, and one that I've seen in others as well. Um, right now, the, the, the country which you live in and which you have children in um, is going through big challenges and, and hopefully change, uh, systemic change of recognition of injustice um, and all of these sorts of things that we're um, learning about. And um, I, I wonder, um, you know, you're a parent. Um, you look forward to your children's future being one of peace and equality, as most of us do. Um, if you could share any thoughts or experiences uh, about kind of what you're seeing as, as an outsider, but now, um, you know, someone who's living and raising children in, in America. Yes, every parent's dream is great future for his or her kid. And that is my hope in life. To see a future unified country. Mm. And I think the challenges that we are facing as humans, if we, particularly as Americans, on inequalities, with, is having an open mind about it and being able to forgive one another on our past injustices if we are really, really honest about changing how we will do things in the future. Because if you look at it this way, you know, when I'm from Kenya and when we celebrate our independence. We say it was a time that Kenya regained its autonomy, self-rule. So here in the U.S., I'm also a U.S. citizen now, we say, you know, in 1776, we gained our independence. Hmm. And that was a turning moment in the U.S. But then you think about that moment in 1776, Slavery was still practiced then. So then you're starting to ask yourself, how was that an independent time in the U.S.? Like, what did that mean in those days' context? But then we cannot stay there and start to thinking like we are in 1776. But we cannot also ignore what happened then. We have to try and use our past. And when I say our past, starting from yesterday, to improve on our future. Open our minds to accept that. These issues, these inequalities in life exist. Even if you've not experienced it, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It does. Because we've even, you know, we have as humans our own biases on the way sometimes we think about things. But then, you know, sometimes you have to acknowledge, tell yourself, maybe I am biased in what I am, or in the way I am seeing this. Accepting that would be huge. They're taking it 
in on its face value like okay these are the problems that we have and we have to open our minds and listen to everyone and try and come up or come together as a country to solve it the challenge however though in this racial injustices too is there is a lot of painful past that we have to be so careful on how we present our opinions on those injustices and part of it is as a society if we all agree to forgive each other and honestly want to change our future we could open up ourselves on a real conversation on these matters without necessarily throwing so many people under the bus because of how maybe they say or the, the way they view or the way they are, you know like real, you know perception is your reality hmm. we have to see what most like what is this person's reality or perception in life then we and we try to understand his perspective in order to help him address the issues that we see because we if we don't also come from other people perspective to try and see how they see a society how are we going to shift our perspectives on their perspective and try to force them to see the world the way we see and i'm not saying you know there are wrongs that we know as humans like the obvious this is wrong and right those are there and everyone majorities of people know that but there is the other part that maybe someone has not experienced and they don't see it because think of it this way hmm. if there is a genuine person out there that in his or her heart he or she sees that every human is equal and you're trying to tell them that there is a lot of injustices maybe they may not be able to see that because in their heart in their pure soul they don't see that and they cannot understand that there is another human being who would see another human in a lesser way so it doesn't mean that they are really on denial it's their perception because in their mind in their soul in their heart they cannot see fellow human treating another human so injustly hmm. so, so sometimes those can be easily interpreted as people who don't take the matter at hand seriously so it's a very complex subject that needs a lot of understanding and a lot of openness in our mind hmm. and just lastly you know the the easiest fix in my view would be the system the way our systems are set if we had a system where those who are in profession in and i mean any profession would treat everyone equally it would be easy 
or easier to address it. But then there are the systems out there, and I mean the systems that are funded by taxpayers' money that have those problems. They are portraying in almost an obvious way, and then now we are trying to ask everyone else to change. But then there are these systems that they are looking upon and saying, why does it have to be me if the systems that are supposed to be doing better are not even doing better? Why are you throwing it on me? Hmm. So that's why I think it, if we all, and I mean from an individual level to an institutional level, agree that yes, this racial inequality exists and we have to address it in a very open-minded way. I think we will have a good future for all of us. Oh, that was great. Thank you for sharing. I, I mean, especially your, your reflection on perception as reality. Um, you know, I think you're absolutely right. One's how one perceives the world becomes their reality, um, but night might not be the reality that everyone is living. And uh, I speak from a position of, of great privilege. Not only, you know, am I a white male, but I'm also able-bodied um, in this um, in this particular sport that we're talking about. I can run just about anywhere and uh, without fear. Um, you know, anytime compete. You know, I have access to, to all sorts of things. Um, but obviously, um, anyone, if they take a moment to think about it, um, that is not the case for a, a large majority of people, whether that be because of, you know, their skin color or because of their financial situation um, or just the way that, you know, they were raised, the environment they were brought up in. Um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier is the, you know, one of those factors, those protective factors of being raised in a, a community like you were in, in Kenya, where you have that, that support and that um, normalcy, that stability um, around running and around, uh, you know, all of the daily practices of eating and um, people sharing things. And I, I think that's, to be honest, I, I think that's one of the things that that most of us are, are missing in a, a kind of a hyper consumer uh, society in the U.S., where we, we don't feel that sense of connection, and in its place is you know that um, kind of going it on your own, eating meals, fast paced, driving everywhere, um, and that has a, a definite cost in terms of connection with others and feeling like you're part of uh, part of a whole, part of a society. Um, I'm sure that was a big transition for you. Uh, you uh, I guess that's a lot to process, but um, are some of those things, do you feel them daily in your, in your daily movement and just kind of how you live in the United States? Yeah, and, and I think there's this, you know, the aspect of living in a house that is self-contained. You know, you have everything that you need in your house. I mean, if you look at it, I think there is some aspect of limiting what we were meant to be as humans. Hmm. You know, we were cre created to be social beings. But then we've created this 
system that you can stay in your house forever and you have everything you need. But in some cultures, like growing up in Kenya, for example, you know, we had to go out there to do things. And that way you were able to meet your neighbors, know your neighbors, know, talk to people around you. And I think that would change our relationships if we had something that, let's say, for example, in your neighborhood, if there was something that, let's say, you guys call it knowing your neighbor, for example, mm-hmm. getting to know who lives within you, I am sure that would change our way of living and thinking because then the person that you would be imagining in your head that maybe this is what this person is, you would actually have a real time conversation with that person and actually get to know them like on a real perspective than your imagination and building you are knowing about them based on your own imagination. Hmm. Hence the problem with uh, hence the problem with uh, segregation in, in most communities in most bigger cities. Um, I I see that um, playing out even in how I was raised in, in areas where they try to, um, you know, they intentionally try to bring people together, but it's not always uh, effective. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm bringing that because, like, let's be honest, even if, let's say, today we're, we're trying to say, and I'm not saying we should, but we're, we're trying to say, let's bring people together, right? But you bring people together that don't know themselves. Where are they going to start? How are you going to start? a conversation with someone you don't even know. Hmm. Your neighbor you don't even know. And then all of a sudden now, you're bringing them together and asking them, what do we need to do in our country during these polarized times? Like, you don't even know each other. You don't know. But if we shift our society to a society that has more human-to-human connections, we'll be able maybe to get to understand each other more. Remember, like this 21st century, we live in a society that we are more connected technologically, but most isolated at the same time. Hmm. We don't have one on, you don't even know who is your next neighbor, but you are so interconnected. Yeah, that that physical, I I think you hit on it, that physical isolation is is really where... um... Somehow, as human beings, we need that that physical, social connection um, to picture another person as not being the other, but as being part of our part of our tribe, part of our our really our inner circle. And um, some of the goals and dreams that that um, I think we both share, um, you know, can be united and and move forward if if we're really connected in that way. Um, what you know, taking a step back, I I want to connect this back to your, because I know that you are really um, your your running is very spiritual thing for you. Um, it's a very physical thing for you, and it connects with all that you do in your your life perspective. Um, how would you describe you know kind of your approach to to how you stay positive or what you decide, how you decide is the next right thing to do um, when you're faced with a, a difficult decision? You know, running in itself 
helps, you know, me, any person who runs. It helps you, your health, either spiritually, physically, and mentally. You know, it, it has that aspect to clear up yourself. It gives you there's that tiredness that comes from running, and it's a good uh, ex- exhaustion. You get so tired that you really, really want some time to sleep, for example, or maybe take a midday nap after you've had a long um, run. Mm. That gives one the ability to clear up and see the next activity in a more clear way than somebody who is struggling to even sleep at night, for example, with, you know, have insomnia. And they are trying to think about the next event. But at the same time, they've not even cleared the moment that they are in. You know, somebody who has not had enough rest can be thinking about the next event if they've not addressed the problem that they have at the moment, which is, I have not had enough rest. I have not had enough sleep. I have not en- had enough uh, healthy m- uh, mind at the moment to move forward to the next thing. Hmm. Yeah, and you've, I, I'm, I'm reminded of that statistic. I um, recently read that over half of Americans suffer from some sort of insomnia. And I think you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a factor or a symptom of an ever-moving culture that is really anxious about um, what's next. You know, how do I show up and what, what should I do to maximize my, um, you know, what I want to, to get today? Um, that feeling of rest is, is almost meditative in that it gives you a chance to cleanse and recoup and time to think away from all of those stresses. Um, for you, what, what do you think at this point in time is, is the next right thing? Like, how do you wake up and have hope for, um, you know, for your children? What, what, what is the next right thing for us to do? Well, you know, uh, speaking for the truth, we have to be very truthful to ourselves. That is, you know, you don't want to live in... I don't want to see a society that we live in a fantasy world. We have to understand the problems that we are facing today. And that doesn't mean understanding it and stressing over it. We understand what are the problems that we are facing as a society and try as much as we can to address it in a very humane way. And what keeps me... uh, really positive and optimistic is the idea that majorities, majority of Americans stand for the good. You know, you see uh, that unfortunate video we all saw mm. of yes. a police officer sitting on someone's neck for eight minutes, nine minutes. Not even one person disagrees that, or maybe nobody tries to justify that. Eh, maybe that was something that there was a reason of doing. Almost everyone I have talked to 
agrees that there was something wrong about that. Hmm. So when a society still sees that something, everyone still sees something that's wrong, they, they can still distinguish wrong from right, we're still moving in the right direction because the idea that we know what is wrong is a positive thing for our future. That gives me hope that mm-hmm. we all have a common destiny. And our destiny is seeing a society that is truthful, just, and does right things. Hmm. I, I really like how you frame that. I, you know, I, as you know, I have an 18-month-old daughter as well. And that idea of speaking truth as you go about your regular day or your, you know, making connections, interactions, talking to people. Because I, I think the came, the thing that came out to me from your advice is that it's it's nothing that you can do overnight. You know, it's not something where we can make this big movement and it's going to change things right away. But living in truth and acknowledging wrong and listening to, to others, that that's that's where it's at. I, and obviously I need to do more of that. But I appreciate um that simple reminder because it doesn't mean necessarily quitting our jobs and you know uh, reframing our entire lives but just living in that truth and accepting it um that's that's great advice thank thank you for those words of wisdom and sometimes people ask for example they're like hey marco you know i've never lived as a black man in america my white friends sometimes ask me so what do what do i need to do and what I want to tell everyone, and I, I don't mean like my white friend, I'm saying all my friends or all the listeners that will be listening to, do, to this, sometimes you don't even have to do anything. If you are honest, open-minded, just listen. If you listen someone trying to talk to you about an experience that they are going through, and you listen it with open mind, truthfully, you will know what to do next because each case will be different. So I don't have one advice on this is exactly how you're going to address this. But if you listen it wholeheartedly with a lot of willingness to wanting to understand, the reality of the circumstances, you will find an answer. You will know what to do after you listen. Hmm. That's great. Listening with an open heart and mind. And I, I hope that I that I I strive to do that and I hope to do so more and more with practice. Um, I, I really appreciate your perspective, Marco, because it comes from one that is both a cultural outsider and an insider, you know, being an American for for the time and raising American children, but also having that perspective of something different, you know, another way of conceptualizing the world and society. I think that we need to hear that, and um, particularly that idea of independence. You know, what what is real independence? Uh, are we all independent if not all of us are completely free? And I, I really appreciate that 
that reflection on, on Kenyan independence and American independence as well. I think that'll be my big takeaway from today. Thank you. Um, all right. Well, let's close up. Uh, I always close up by asking um, any uh, big things you're looking forward to in your running uh, this year and um, and why. You know, I was looking forward into a Boston Marathon, which was scheduled for April and then postponed to September and now has been canceled. And the reason I was looking onto that was they had, this year was going to be Boston first time having a fairer section of the marathon where people running on prosthetics. So people with disability had their own category that had prize money on it. Oh, that's and great. it's very huge on inclusion, you know. There's this part that yeah. a society says inability is not disability, but then at the same time you look at some things that we do in life and some events don't even have anything for people with disability. And we are in a society that talks about inclusivity, but then you look into that, you're like, okay, what is inclusivity, particularly on our running world, hmm. distance running? What is this that we call inclusivity? Do we have everybody on board? Do we? Because if you think of it this way, for an athlete like myself, who is an amputee, to train for a marathon, it doesn't take an amputee lesser time to train for a marathon than an able-bodied athlete. That's the for amount sure. of time that I need is the same amount of maybe even more time for me because I have more devices to put on to practice. But still, I am still looking onto that 2021, hopefully, Boston Marathon where I will be standing on the start line knowing that this is an event that there is a recognition of someone with disability. And that does not only play for me. It will play out in a positive way for that kid with disability out there mm -hmm. trying to look into the future and plan on who they want to be. Because we have to be honest. If you want to pursue something in this society, it has to have to have a reward. How are you going to sustain yourself if you cannot benefit financially from what you want to pursue? Hmm. So the big thing is, and my hope is, in the near future, all the major marathons will emulate the Boston Marathon and have and prizes is... for all types of disabilities in their event. Yes. This is perhaps the biggest event in the running world, arguably, and that's a big step. I'm uh, I'm very hopeful, and I, I know you have a good chance of making it on the podium, so I'm, I'm really hopeful for 2021. And um, I, I, I know for a fact that you're putting in the time and uh, that, as you said, the amount of time necessary is just as much, if not more, um, that you'd have to put in for that hard work to pay off. So I, I hope that uh, more more major races follow suit. 
um, getting ready for that uh, that event. I, I wish you the very best, and, and we'll be following you and um, posting links on, I know there's upcoming articles and maybe even a film in the near future about about your running and your life. So I, I look forward to, to seeing more about that and to learning more about uh, about your journey. All right, Mark. Thank you very much. And you can tell your listeners to follow me on my social media. It's at Marathon Marco. At Marathon Marco, definitely. I will post that, and they can link to you um, as well from the Running Anthropologist website, uh, runninganthropologist.com, and I'll post all that information there. Thank you very much. You're welcome, and thanks thanks for your wisdom, and particularly at this time. It's really appreciated, um, and I wish you happy running, Marco. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, best to you and your family. Take care. All right. Bye. And thanks to all of you for joining us. What an amazing episode. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't remember to mention that Marco and his wife, in addition to raising three beautiful children, are also helping to raise a small village in Kenya, with their Alaskana school. That's Alaska, Kenya, you know, you get it. Um, They fund it, they sustain it, and really cool project. You can check that out and everything else about him on his website, marathonmarco.com. That's links to that in the show notes, as well as lots of other cool stuff down below. And you can check it out on our website too, runninganthropologist.com all the information from this episode, as well as all of our past ones. You know, I would also be remiss if I didn't say what an incredible impact Marco has had on the way that I wake up and see my role in the situation today. He gave me a simple idea that I just need to do the next right thing, and that so long as we hold on to an antiquated view of race relations that holds us captive and separates us from one another, None of us can be truly free. And I hope that it's done the same for you. I hope that you have an opportunity to pass along this positive message. And until next time, I wish you and yours peace, relative balance between action and contemplation, and happy running.